This episode contains several swears. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bismiak's. On today's episode, we have somebody who has won a Hugo Award and been nominated for several other Hugos, a Nebula, and probably a bunch of other awards I can't think of at the moment. Sarah Gailey, welcome to the podcast. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here, and I'm excited to have you here for our very first episode. Hell yeah, I love being on the first episode of a thing. Hell yeah. I have known Sarah online since their very first published story, Look, which came out in 2015? That sounds right. It's in Cease Cows magazine. Um, It is a flash horror piece um, that is like the first thing I ever had published, and I'm still so proud of it. June of 2015. Yeah, it is... It is a fantastic story, and I read it, and I was like, I want to know who this person is, and immediately followed them on Twitter. Looking back at that story, I occasionally worry about representation, but that's a thing for another podcast. I will say that Cease Cows was just relentlessly supportive in getting this story out there and my name, and I could not have been more excited as a first-time published writer. That's awesome. That is uh, that is much more than my first published piece got support. I, my first published piece was a flash fiction story that came out on a daily flash fiction live journal magazine. Ooh! Because that's how long I've been doing this for. <laughs> Kids, if you're listening and you don't know what live journal is, look it up. It, it was... was uh, it, it was, was a something. lot. It was a lot. Didn't, like, Russia eat LiveJournal? Russia ate LiveJournal, and then maybe right before that, Dreamwidth was like, hey, we're going to be LiveJournal, but for not Russians. And then, like, two people stuck with Dreamwidth. Hi, both people on Dreamwidth. <laughs> we got to bring Zanga back. Yeah, for sure. Nothing problematic ever happened on Zanga, no. and there was no drama. Never. It was a utopia. It was a utopia. Online utopias used to exist, listeners. Mm-hmm. Dear listeners. Back before all this conflict on the internet. <laughs> before this hoo-ha. So I started following Sarah on Twitter immediately after reading this first story of theirs and had the good fortune of, at the time, living in the same city as Sarah and meeting them in person. And let me tell you, they are even more of a quality person in real life. The same thing is true about Hillary. I was like, oh, this person's going to be cool. And then we met IRL. And I was like, yep, I was right. And then I was like, oh, shit. I had no idea how cool Hillary would be. And we've been friends ever since. There you have it. So, Sarah, you're going to be reading a story called Meet Cute. And that is Meet M-E-E-T. When I saw the title, I thought I had misread for a second and thought it was M-E-A-T, which would also be a very Sarah Gailey story. That's going to be the cannibal story I write, like, as soon as I get off this podcast. Excellent. I, uh, recently, I will say I was pitching a story that was going to be, like, West Side Story, but plus cannibals and zombies and minus the racism. Oh my god, I want and that. And I was going to call it Meet Cute, but 
my agent, who is very patient and long-suffering, was like, please, God, don't do this to me. <laughs> Dongwon, why? Yeah, he does. He tries hard every day. So, yeah, I'm going to be reading Meet Cute. Should I talk about it before I yeah, read Yeah, can you tell us uh, when this was written and why you picked it? According to my Google version history, I wrote Meet Cute in March of 2014, which... Sounds right, because that is when I first started writing. I had been beta reading and critiquing for a friend of mine who was a very prolific short fiction writer for quite a while, and I started saying to myself, you know, maybe I can try doing this thing too. And I wrote two stories in, like, the same weekend, and one of them was Meet Cute, and the other one was a story called Letting Go that is about, like, a dead woman whose husband can't interact with her ghost. Oh, that's that fucked me up. That story yeah. fucked me up so much. So I was trying to pick between those two because I've never published either of them anywhere. And the reason I've never published either of them anywhere is because I showed them to that friend who was a very prolific short fiction writer. And they responded telling me that the one about the ghost wife wasn't a story and didn't have anything to say. And that the other one was a, a disaster. And that... You know, some people just aren't cut out to be writers, and I should stick to what I'm good at, namely giving critiques. And I didn't write anything else for a few months. Um, I'm not going to try and say exactly how many, because I don't remember. Uh, you know, for 90 years, I didn't write anything else. And Fair. I've never even considered publishing either of these stories, because even though when I go back and read them, I enjoy them, and I'm like, oh, this is nice. There's this thing, like, really deep down inside me that's like, oh, if you show people these, then they'll know that you shouldn't be a writer. So I was picking between those two for this podcast because I was like, you know what, like, fuck that guy. And everything he stands for. Absolutely. And I'm going to share this story. I haven't reread it pretty much, I think, since he gave me that critique. So I don't actually know how good it is. I don't know if it's a mess. I don't know if I get representation right. But I do know that I was really excited to try out writing when I wrote it. Right. Well, I am excited to hear it in your own voice. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully I'll do an okay job. Oh, you'll, you'll do perfectly. Okay. Meet cute. Peter Chakavorty was a thief with a heart of gold. Or at least he was about to be. The solid gold heart of the long-dead last ogre king of Denmark was on display at the Philadelphia Museum of Fine Historical Curiosities. Peter was about to steal it. Of course, he wouldn't be a thief with a heart of gold for very long thereafter. He would soon be a heartless thief with a godlessly massive quantity of money. Then he would be a heartless thief with a slightly less sacrilegious amount of money and a modest castle in which to store the money, and a cozy little island on which to store the castle and 30 square miles of private ocean in which to store the island. This heart wasn't just any old thump-thumping, blood-pumping meat heart. It was made of gold, so pure and malleable that Peter had custom-sewn the getaway bag with aeronautical foam inserts to keep the heart from deforming. It was over 10,000 years old. It was guarded by a security system so specialized that the liability involved in stealing it would drive up the sale price by an additional 86%. This particular heart was going to make Peter Chakavorty a very happy, very wealthy, very retired master thief. Slash Island King. (laughs) If only his father had lived long enough to see this final incredible heist. Peter tightened the groin straps of the harness he was wearing. He hated groin straps for obvious reasons, and so he always worried that he would leave them too loose out of discomfort. 
He would much rather be walking a little funny tomorrow than be a corpse with unpinched testicles. So he cinched the groin straps. In just a few minutes, the museum would be closed. Almost time. Peter ran his hands through his hair. Mental note, make sure there is a barber on the island. And shook out his fingers. He gave a couple of exploratory hops across the tar paper roof of the Museum of Fine Historical Curiosities. Took a deep breath. Exhaled. Time to go down. Estelle was a thief with a heart of gold. Or at least she was about to be. The solid gold heart of the long-dead last ogre king of Denmark was on display at the Philadelphia Museum of Fine Historical Curiosities. Estelle was about to steal it. And then she was going to keep it. Oh, sure, she would let people think she had sold it to them. It would have been easy to sell, but not nearly as satisfying as the theft followed immediately by a con. She could have made <laughs> enough money from the sale of the real heart to buy the moon if were she so inspired. But Estelle was a shrewd businesswoman with a penchant for profit. She would do 50 or 60 easy marks into thinking that they were getting a bargain on the solid gold heart of the long-dead last ogre king of Denmark. They would receive convincing forgeries, and the heart would retire to her display room with the other 99 valuable artifacts she had stolen during her storied career. She would put it in a display with a contented sigh and smile at the fruits of her brilliance. Estelle had been planning this particular pilferage for quite some time, and she was at the top of her game. During her career, she'd killed some of the best master thieves in the business and then laughingly taken their loot back to her lair. She knew what she was doing. She'd entered the museum with a tour group, wearing a smart little touristy get-up over her second-skin lycra catsuit. Cargo pants, polo shirt, fanny pack, ball cap, the whole deal. She even had a selfie stick with a well-worn padded handle to reflect depressingly regular use. Her high ponytail wilted slowly throughout the day, and there was a food stain on her shirt that nobody bothered to mention. It was all very sad, and nobody noticed her because people don't like to notice sad women who are on sad vacations by themselves. She went to the ladies' room about an hour before closing and got to work divesting herself of her lonely tourist disguise. Estelle shook out her long auburn hair before tucking it into a spiraling bun at the nape of her neck. The air conditioning in the bathroom softly fuffled to itself, and goosebumps rose on her arms. She checked that her catsuit was zipped up just enough to keep her well-contained, but not so high that she would be unable to reach the tiny thumb drive hidden in her cleavage. The catsuit, which clung to her strategically athletic body, wasn't strictly required, but there were security cameras everywhere, and she had a reputation to maintain. <laughs> Being a famous female criminal was a high-pressure proposition. She'd worn sweatpants to steal the Moonstone Scepter six years before, and the internet had exploded with speculation about whether she was pregnant or had simply given up on life. The catsuit was necessary if she wanted to maintain her image. She wavered between feeling resentful of the performance and proud of the way that the lycra displayed the body for which she toiled in the gym. She usually landed on resentment, with the exception of the hours immediately preceding and following a heist. In those moments, she preened like an eagle cleaning blood from its feathers. Estelle stashed the now-useless, lonely tourist disguise behind the toilet. She rolled her shoulders, stretched, and strapped on her utility belt. Someone reached into the room and snapped the lights off, without bothering to check the handicap-accessible stall where she waited. Time to head out. <laughs> Peter slowly fed out the length of rope that suspended him from the 100-foot ceiling. The height was intended to deter drop-down thieves like himself. In certain circles, that style of architecture was known as anti-Chakavorty roofing. <laughs> the hole he had laser-cut into the anti-Chakavorty roof of the museum was just big enough for one relatively fit man not past his prime, regardless of the hints his mother occasionally dropped, to slide through, and slide he did. Then, inch by inch, he began the drop. He went slowly. Keeping oneself suspended from a length of nylon rope is extremely difficult. 
Keeping oneself in the exact center of a hexagon of motion-detecting lasers is even more difficult. Peter was combining the two. Who could blame him for the profuse sweat collecting in his various crevices? As he inched his way toward the softly lit display case below, he reviewed his next steps. The solid gold heart of the long-dead last ogre king of Denmark would weigh about 80 pounds. Of course, once he had the heart, all he had to do was push the button on the line feeder around his waist and he would zip right back up to the roof. But hefting the thing out of the case while dangling from 100 feet of nylon? Without stretching or snapping the cable? That was a whole different bucket of butts. One practically needed to be an Ogre King of Denmark in order to haul something that heavy. Of course, the last Ogre King of Denmark himself had never carried 80 pounds of gold heart around. He had carried about 40 pounds of regular Ogre heart. It was not until he died that his heart was converted to solid gold by Ogre-specific decay processes. His heart was the only one successfully smuggled out of harm's way when the Nazis plundered Denmark's historic treasure caverns. As such, it was worth far more than its weight in gold. Far more than anything's weight in gold. Still, that 80 pounds meant Peter would have to set his feet firmly on solid ground and lift with his knees. Tricky, the museum was rumored to have a very sensitive floor. Caution was called for. So Peter inched down at a pace that would make the growth of cave moss seem alarming. He would probably end up selling the heart to an eccentric collector. He continued feeding out line as he idly imagined some old coop living alone in a huge mansion replete with paintings and Aztec artifacts that would make Carmen Sandiego weep with desire. He was treating himself to the image of the old coop trying to cram the requisite amount of unmarked bills into a big canvas sack with a dollar sign on it when he heard something. Beep. The tiniest of sounds, Estelle swore silently, the sound of the connection being made. She hoped to God it was quieter than it seemed. Burn, can't you be quieter? She whispered into her Bluetooth. Burn didn't respond. She never responded. When Estelle had expressed doubts that the tiny thumb drive would be able to dismantle an entire museum's alarm system, Burn had said nothing. She had simply looked at Estelle with eyes like the bottom of a well and let out a slow hiss. Estelle, of course, trusted Burn implicitly, but that tiny beep made her nervous. Okay, Burn, hack the mainframe. It was a joke. She was pretty sure it was a joke. Estelle outsourced this kind of work to Byrne because she had not the faintest notion of how it all worked. Byrne had directed her to plug this little thumb drive into a USB port curiously located in the middle of a drinking fountain. No explanations were offered for the mechanics of the plan. If Byrne had actually explained it, Estelle was still unlikely to understand how it worked. She was much more likely to curl up at home with a few fingers of whiskey and a good book than she was to use a computer for any reason. Estelle was faintly intimidated by the glowing screens of those machines that promised to transport one to a land of information. So Estelle made her little joke and hoped that Byrne was doing something. Byrne was, indeed, doing something. Beep. A tiny green light appeared on the end of the thumb drive. The green light blinked twice and then vanished in a puff of obscenely purple smoke. The thumb drive and the USB port were gone, replaced by the smooth metal of the drinking fountain. The lasers in the hallway ahead flickered out. Thanks, Byrne, Estelle whispered. Then she murmured Burn's payment into the Bluetooth. A secret. I think... Burn, I think this is going to be my last job. I want to settle down somewhere. Find a nice guy with green eyes and maybe have a kid or two. Build a house with a porch and get some rocking chairs. Make friends with the neighbors. No more stealing. No more killing rivals. I think I'm done with all this insanity. She let out a sigh of relief as Burn hung up the line. Paid in full with a significant emotional tip. It was true. Estelle was ready to hang up her lycra cat suit and settle down. If only the right guy would come along. Someone who wouldn't judge her for her past. Someone who would love her for the duration of her future. Someone special. But men like that don't just drop out of the sky. <laughs> that little beep and then the lasers all around him had flicked off. 
No, 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 no. Peter fed out the line fast now, descending, no, dropping, no, falling, 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 no, 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 no. He managed to stop the line with a grinding whine of the feeder brakes, and he jerked to a halt, the hated groin straps digging in painfully. His ass was about three inches from the ground. He rotated slowly as he caught his breath. Peter pulled a tiny detector detector from his vest pocket. He aimed it at the ground and swept horizontally. The light on the top of the detector stayed amber. No detectors around for it to detect. That couldn't be right. He shook the device vigorously and pressed the detect detectors button again. Hard. Still nothing. No detectors of any kind seemed to exist in the vicinity. Peter gingerly brushed one foot against the floor tiles, then set it down more firmly. No alarms went off. No lights flashed. Peter made a mental note to figure out what had happened to the floor sensors once he was at a safe distance. This was the time to act, not the time to analyze. He placed his other foot on the floor and waited for disaster. Nothing. He stood firmly, grounded. There it was. The solid gold heart of the long-dead last ogre king of Denmark. It was beautiful. About the size of a gym-savvy man's torso, the heart was dull. There's too much texture in the cardiac meat of an ogre for any real luster to shine through. And yet... It seemed more radiant than the artful lighting of the display case should have merited. That, thought Peter, is the glow of money. The glow of a future. The heart looked like an island. The ascending aorta perched upon it like the turrets of a castle. It luxuriated in a sea of purple velvet cushion. Peter was ready. He slipped the backpack off his shoulders and pulled out a book. A treatise on the many and varied security systems of the Philadelphia Museum of Fine Historical Curiosities and How to Dodge Them by Peter A. Chakavorty. It was his calling card, the how-done-it he left at the scene of each and every one of his amazing capers. This one was printed on extra-heavy cardstock. The tome weighed a total of 80 pounds, perfect for depressing the pin on the weight sensor under that purple cushion. No Indiana Jones sandbag switch required. Just keep the pin depressed, and then off he'd go, heart in hand. Placing the book between his feet, Peter flexed his hands inside of their grippy gloves. His palms were dry. His mouth was moist. His knees were steady. It was time. He put his hands on either side of the glass display case and lifted it off. Estelle crept around the corner of the display room on her fingers and toes. Her lycra catsuit, in addition to displaying her athletic physique to the very pinnacle of its abdominal glory, had special grippy gloves and soles that allowed her to sneak low to the ground without fear of slipping. She wore no mask. It was better to have her face exposed for the cameras. Her <laughs> eyes were wide, scanning for movement in the dark room. Something was wrong. The air tasted not quite stale enough. She hesitated before moving forward, staying low in case of patrolling security guards. There were no windows in the display room. Maybe someone left the air conditioning on? No matter. The display case loomed above her. Estelle slipped the glass cutter out of her utility belt. Now or never. Visions of holding hands with her green-eyed man shone before her in the reflection of the glass display. Those visions suddenly rose up and away from her. She blinked hard. The display case was gone. Assuming she had set off some hidden security feature... One that exposed the heart? It didn't make sense, but what the heck. Estelle put her hands on the heart and prepared to heave it off the pillow. She'd just have to grab it and run. And then there were two strong hands covering hers. They were warm, covered in the same grippy nylon that covered her palms and soles. She looked up into a pair of startlingly green eyes. <laughs> Peter didn't see the woman until his hands were already on hers. She was stunning. Flawless ivory skin, flashing blue eyes. He couldn't tell her hair color in the dim light, but he was certain that it would be a bewitching shade of auburn. She was staring at him, her eyes boring deeply into his very soul. His breath caught in his throat, and he snatched his hands away. Those notoriously blue eyes glimmered with curiosity. Who are you? 
Her voice was soft. She didn't sound afraid. Peter felt his ears growing hot. A rush of blood, tiny stars danced at the edge of his vision. It couldn't be. This was the woman he had been searching for. This was the one he could feel it. His heart, his human heart, the one he already owned, swelled against his sternum. Estelle realized who he was the instant she looked back down at the heart. Under it was a book, a treatise on the many and varied security systems of the Philadelphia Museum of Fine Historical Curiosities and How to Dodge Them, by Peter A. Chakavorty. You're Peter A. Chakavorty? Oh my god, you're a legend! I, I thought you would be older. She stifled a laugh. Funny, the man rumbled. I thought you'd be older, too. I've been waiting to meet you for so long. Estelle's chest felt like it was full of helium. Surely he felt it, too, that this was the person she'd been searching for forever. This was the person to end a career with. Love, love at first sight, true and honest and singing through her very bones. She felt that she had been struck by a tuning fork. She felt full. She felt hollow. She felt like a bird. His lips parted. She knew that whatever he said, her answer would be yes. Estelle, right? I've been waiting to kill you for years. <gasps> Estelle's brow furrowed just as it was punctured by Peter's hollow-point bullet. Peter had meant it when he said that he thought she'd be older. The woman who had killed his father looked too young to have already been a master thief twenty years earlier. Impressive. Peter had been a mere apprentice at the time, and he would never forget the way that long auburn hair swayed behind the woman who had thrown a dagger into his father's left eye. As she darted away with the massive diamond that Peter and his father had been prepared to steal, she had laughed. There was genuine mirth in her voice as she disappeared— leaving Peter cradling his dying father's head in his lap. Well, she wasn't laughing anymore. Peter lifted the heart off of its pillow with a grunt. He lowered it gently into his backpack, and then the problem arose in his mind like a cloud of steam. The body. He couldn't leave it for a guard to find. There was timing at play. There was a sense of theater. His escape cable was not strong enough to lift Estelle's corpse out along with him and the heart. He would have to stash her somewhere. With a sigh, he unclipped himself and left his harness and bag dangling from the hole in the ceiling like an umbilical cord with an unsightly 80-pound placenta. He grabbed Estelle under the arms and started to drag her toward the hallway. She was dead weight, heavier than he would have expected. He tugged her corpse in fits and starts. He was a grown man, a strong man, but he wasn't really used to this amount of dead weight, and his arms were tired from inching himself down the rope earlier. Peter was walking backwards, until he wasn't. His back connected with something utterly solid. There was a grunt and a heavy, fleshy thud. Peter felt something in the area of his descending colon rapidly twist itself into a perfect overhand sailing knot. <laughs> he and the security guard turned to face each other at the same time, slowly, precisely, like two clockwork people engaged in a gear-timed dance. Peter couldn't speak for a moment. The security guard was tall, with wide shoulders and a strong jaw. Her brow was beaded with sweat, and her face had the look of someone who was dreading an impending consequence. Peter's hand was on his gun, but he couldn't bring himself to press the muzzle into the thick cloud of dark curls that surrounded her face, not while her eyes, the color of which he could not determine in the dim light of the hallway, were flicking back and forth between his eyes and his mouth. Peter squeezed his eyes shut for a moment, trying to clear his head and ready himself for a fight. When he opened them again, he saw the body behind the security guard. Uh, Betty, Peter read off the name tag sewn onto the security guard's uniform. Betty. He immediately loved the way that it sounded like a breath being released after being underwater. Betty, what's, uh, what's your colleague doing on the floor there? Because, yes, it was another security guard. Man, paunchy, dead. Betty smiled warily. He was an HR problem. No union mediators available. What's your colleague doing on the floor? 
Her eyes flicked down to Estelle's limp body, then back to Peter. He couldn't help but smile back. An excellent point, Betty. What if we go about our business and pretend this little run-in never happened? Even as he said the words he wished them away, he didn't want to pretend he had never run into her. Or... Her lips rounded around the word like a small, round butterscotch candy. Peter felt something inside of him crack, an iced-over lake on the first balmy day of spring. Or what? Wiping sweat from his brow, Peter glanced sidelong at the security guard. In the flickering light of the open incinerator doors, he could see that her lips were full and her lashes were long. He let his hand brush hers and watched a smile settle over her face. I'm Peter. She leaned forward, nudged the incinerator door closed, and turned to head up the stairs toward the gallery. Well, Peter, thanks for being willing to team lift and for, you know, not asking questions about... No, it's totally... I mean, don't worry about it at all. Whatever. Awkward. He hoped she didn't think he was an idiot. They returned to the gallery, and Peter clipped himself back into his harness. The backpack was heavy, but somehow the weight didn't seem like so much to carry anymore. Hey, uh, Betty, thanks. No problem. I should probably... I mean, I should get going. I have to... Yeah, no, not a big deal. I gotta go too, you know, heist and all. But, uh, would you coffee? I mean, would you? I mean... Oh, man. His palms were clammy inside of his grippy gloves. He scrunched his eyes closed as if that would make him sound less stupid. When he opened them, Betty was smiling. Really smiling, with all her teeth showing. She was smiling at him. When Peter looked at that smile, it was like an ogre's fist had grabbed his heart and given it a gentle squeeze. I'd love to coffee, Peter. She pulled a ballpoint pen from her shirt pocket, pushed his ballistic nylon sleeve up, and wrote her phone number on his forearm. Call me? Peter's human heart blossomed in his chest as the cable retracted, pulling him up and out of the gallery. He watched Betty shrink into the darkness below, and he wondered if maybe there wasn't room on his island for two castles. The end. Holy shit. Holy shit, that twist. Oh, that was that was incredible, Sarah. That truly was. <laughs> and I Thank you. feel really honored that you brought that story here. I'm just excited to have a chance to share it with anybody. Yeah. I, but seriously, like chef kiss emoji here. <laughs> Thank you. So the the normal questions that I would ask we've already uh, about the story initially are ones we've already covered, but I'm really curious to hear what your uh, like what your submission process is now compared to what it used to be. Oh gosh, it's really different. Um, I actually don't usually talk about how these things have changed because I have had a really abnormal amount of good fortune and success in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks in large part to people being incredibly supportive of my work. And thanks in part to the the submissions hustle that I had early on in, with my short fiction. Mm-hmm. So the way that I used to do submissions is I had this huge elaborate spreadsheet that tracked every short story I'd, I'd written. Which in that first year of writing, after I got past the thing of like, oh, I should never write again, I wrote, I want to say 27 short stories that first year. Jesus. Listeners, like, I've seen Sarah's spreadsheets and they are 
incredible, and the amount of <laughs> truly the amount of hustle is incredible. Thank you. Like that dedication is no joke. So in this in the the short story submission spreadsheet, I had two different pages, and one of them was where the short story is now on submission. So like, you know. My short story, um, Hillary is the best, <laughs> is out for submission at Famous Hillary's Monthly and has been there since this date. And this is the date I expect them to get back to me. And here's the stage in the submissions process that it's at. And then once I got a rejection, that would go into the next page, which was a record of every place I had ever submitted a short story. That way I wasn't submitting twice. You know, I wouldn't mm-hmm. send Hillary is the best to Famous Hillary's Monthly twice in a row. Instead, I would go to Famous Hillary's Quarterly and then a Famous Hillary's Review yeah. after that. Um, I don't actually remember if I ever submitted Meet Cute anywhere. I may have done, after I recovered from, like, I shouldn't be a writer, I, I may have sent this one a couple of places. But I now have a totally different process. Um, I write a lot less short fiction because I'm spending so much time writing longer fiction. Mm -hmm. And when I do write short fiction, it usually is for a a specific project that I've been asked to write for. There's nothing right now that I can talk about that's been announced yet. Oh, wait, yes, there is. Um, So an example of this is that I recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And the way I had that submission process happen was that I had written and published a piece with Fireside Fiction, um, Go Fireside, I am Team Fireside Until I Die. Yep, this this podcast, we've already recorded, I've already recorded two episodes of this podcast before this, the inaugural episode, and every episode has been very pro-Fireside Fiction, and also actually very pro-Sarah Gailey. Oh, that's nice. Well, cool. Um, I'm pro the other people who you recorded episodes with, too. Excellent. Even though I don't know who they are. Um, <laughs> but I, I, so I had had this piece go up with Fireside um, called Stet. It's, it's Hugo eligible if you're nominating. It and is Hugo eligible. It is Hugo worthy. It is, frankly, it's fantastic wherever you happen to read it and... If you can read it in both Fireside Fiction Online and Fireside Quarterly, go and do that because it is two totally different, totally wonderful experiences. God, the the formatting that they did is stunning. Yeah. And so this, you know, this was a very experimental format, and Fires the team at Fireside made it gorgeous and readable and functional. And so what happened was the uh, the editor who I worked with at the Atlantic saw that and contacted me via my website and said, would you like to write a short story for the Atlantic? And I fell off my chair and like, like fear vomited and then was like, yeah, okay. And he told me a a basic prompt that he wanted me to work off of, um, which was very broad. And then I sent him a couple of pitches to narrow that down. And we workshopped the pitches together to get the right direction for the story. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote the story that we settled on like a basic concept for. And then I sent that directly to him. That's how I do most of my short fiction right now because I don't have time to do a lot of other short fiction where I'm just writing it like because I think of it and then sending it out to see whoever wants it. Mm-hmm. I do also have a few people where I'll write a piece and then be like, hey, 
if you want this for your magazine, I will send it to you first. Um, and then they can say, you know, fuck off with that. Or they can say, yeah, all right, we'll take it. Um, which is a totally different submissions method. Like if you had told 2015 or 2016 or even 2017 Sarah Gailey that that's how this would go, I would have been like, oh, okay, you can eat a butt, you crazy person. (laughs) That's not how that's going to happen. Yeah. But that's my submissions process now. That's awesome. One of the big reasons that I wanted to have you on specifically was that I do not feel that I am being hyperbolic in saying that your rise has been meteoric since the time that I first met you in terms of like your being known as a fiction writer going from a flash fiction piece about a creepy baby uh I won't give any more spoilers about that, but it's amazing, (laughs) to, like, winning a friggin' Hugo last year. Oh my god. It's been bananas, Hillary. It's banana pants. It's completely, like, I keep looking over my shoulder like, are you guys seeing this shit? Yeah. And that's also not a thing that I, you know talk about super often because you know i don't want to be an asshole like Mm -hmm. i'm like yeah things are going really great for me thanks guys this is amazing i don't want to you know be standing up on top of the roof of like a houseboat yelling about it yeah for sure but it's been really wild there's so much happening all the time there's a really steep learning curve involved and the process of writing Mm -hmm. the process of coming up with ideas and the process of working with editors has changed significantly in the just the time that I've been writing. Yeah. I will say, to the immense credit of every editor I've ever worked with at every stage of my career, none of them treat me differently, with the possible exception of, like, our emails being a little more informal because I'm not terrified of them anymore, and I'm like, hey, my dude, here are your copy edits, instead of, hello, sir, thank <laughs> you for these words that I am giving you. Like, but... All of the short fiction editors that I worked with early in my career, I've worked with almost all of them again. Mm -hmm. And the level of kindness and clarity and professionalism has been unwavering, you know, from when I was someone who no one had heard of and who was being told by someone I thought was a friend that I shouldn't bother writing to now when I have like a rocket ship in my living room. Yeah. That's, you know, for me as like a very still very early career writer who has been, you know, I've been writing to submit things since, I think, 2006, maybe? And so, like, to hear that there's that level of professionalism across the board is really heartening, and I think it would be especially heartening for me to hear if I had been listening back in 2006 to me in 2019 and not causing a time paradox yeah yeah don't please don't cause a time paradox i don't want to do that into the spider verse and we can't afford that kind of disaster right now yeah but yeah it's especially again huge fucking shout out to fireside who you know they published haunted um which was a very early short story of mine Mm -hmm. that was the short story that got me noticed by the person who is now my agent who has like guided and mentored me and made me into the writer I am now and I just will never forget the process of working on that story with them feeling like I was being treated the way 
you dream of being treated by an editor. You know, I was being talked to as if I am smart and know things about my writing. And Mm -hmm. it was collaborative and kind, just across the board kind. And they've only gotten better since. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think think that's something something I really want to stress and that I think you bring out beautifully is like, you want to just be a person. Yeah. If, and if you're a person, then other people will be a person back to you. And it's mm-hmm. not, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a multi-award nominated author to be treated well. And you don't have to be that to expect to be treated well by editors and by writing peers. And in general, like in general, you want to be treated like a human being. And if you're not being treated like a human being, then you should, you know, maybe reevaluate what's going on there and try to find people who are kind to you. Absolutely. And I mean, first of all, this is something that I love about the the genre short fiction community Mm -hmm. is how excited everyone is for each other and, and how often people treat each other like human beings. I will also say that being treated like a human being goes both directions in terms of like where someone is on the very wide staircase of literary success. Mm -hmm. I say very wide staircase instead of ladder because there's room for all of us on like every step. Yeah. But, you know, as something that someone said to me a long time ago is that you should watch out for how people treat you when you're in power because that's how they expect you to treat them when they're in power. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are people who will see the amount of success that I've had and take that as a reason to stop treating me like a person. And, you know, instead they're treating me like like an avatar of writing. Mm-hmm. Which is, A, wild to me because I am... Listen, guys, I'm not... No, no. <laughs> but also because it's like, those are the same people who I think if I was just starting out would probably be unkind. Mm-hmm. It's just such a signpost if someone is treating someone else in this community or any community as if their worth as a human being is based solely on their level of success. They're not someone who I ever want to work with. That's a really important thing to stress. And I think also, like, you know, nobody nobody gets into writing science fiction, fantasy, horror. Nobody gets into that to make a million dollars. Right. It's not, if you are, if you're listening and you are thinking to yourself, I'm going to find fame and fortune in writing genre fiction. Yeah. Buddy, we got another thing. We got another thing to tell you. Yeah. And that thing is don't do it. Yeah. Like that. Uh, it's just, it's not going to work out that way. I mean, even I am, I'm having so much more success than I could possibly have dreamed of. And it's still, you know, it's, it's not. It's not golden houseboats. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm really on houseboats today. It's I, I'm I'm subtitling this episode houseboats. Good. Okay, I'll try and bring them up a few more times. Um, this is this episode of this podcast is brought to you by the houseboat lobbyists of Los Angeles, California. Yes, and the houseboat lo- lobbyists of Oakland, California, as well. Shout out to Jack London Square, where there's probably at least one houseboat. Gotta be. Gotta be. Ha- houseboats. Houseboats. They're good to have and do. Absolutely. That's the motto of the houseboat lobbyist. Yeah. What I, what I was, uh, before we got on to houseboats where we both live, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. One of the I can I can see the adats out my window right now. <laughs> Shit. Before we got onto our houseboat kick, what mm-hmm. I wanted to say was like even editors are like editors are people too, and that's I think something especially early on that's hard to kind of hold on to when you're feeling really like it can be really easy to feel downtrodden when you get your first rejection and you know when you sent your story out you were like I am amazing I am a god of writing and this is going to make my career overnight I'm going to be on the Today Show tomorrow Mm -hmm. I guess that would make it the tomorrow show Uh, yes I'm going to be on the tomorrow show today (laughs) but that but you know the the editors aren't out to get you. The editors are just there to publish what they think is good, and that goodness isn't a reflection on you. Yeah, it's, and I mean, it it's it is hard to get rejections. It hurts to get rejections, and also rejections kind of rule. I I made a habit early on in my writing, and you know submissions and stuff to try my hardest to reach at least 100 rejections every year. Mm-hmm. And having that as a goal was so helpful for me in framing this. I actually just looked back in my records. And in 2015, I got 99 short story rejections. Germany cricket. In 2016, I got 49 short story rejections. And... All those rejections also added up to acceptances. Mm-hmm. The The year that I got 99 rejections, it looks like I got nine short story acceptances. That's a ton. That's a really high percentage because it, I just managed not to let the rejections wear me down to the point of giving up on stories. Mm-hmm. The only stories that I've ever given up on are the one that I read on this podcast um, today, mm-hmm. the one that I mentioned early in the podcast about the ghost wife. And one that I, like, wrote and then realized, oh, this isn't really my story to write. And that one is in the trunk and kind of belongs to stay there. And I'm just like, okay, that that doesn't need to ever see the light of day. Yeah, for sure. And by leaning into those rejections instead of letting them hurt, I also was able to think of editors more as people because I was like, oh, this editor is rejecting this story not to hurt me or tell me that my story sucks. But because they're doing their job in putting together the magazine that they're trying to put together, right? I I got so many rejections that said, we already have a story like this Mm -hmm. for the issue of the magazine we're putting together now. And they can't just hold on to every story that they kind of like to see if they'll be able to use it later, right? Yeah. Those rejections went from being a thing that told me I was bad to being a thing that told me I was participating with the editors in the process of figuring out what fiction to publish and... That made it so much easier to rack up that first 99. Yeah, absolutely. And it should be noted that it isn't just the personal rejections where the editor is saying, you know, I, I really liked this, but we have a story just like it that we're publishing in the issue that we're putting together right now. It's any rejection. Like, any rejection is a win. Because absolutely. it means that you're writing stories, it means that you're submitting, it means that you're like, every time you put a new word on the page, you are winning. hmm And that's just vital. 
it takes so much courage to put yourself out there. And especially for short story writers who want to write longer fiction mm-hmm. and, you know, query agents and then send books out on submission to publishers and then work with editors of longer fiction, learning to be okay with long wait times and rejections in the short fiction market it translates. Mm-hmm. It, it's a skill that translates into that other thing that you want to do. And if you have no interest in doing that, and you're like, I want to write short stories, awesome. The more markets you talk to, and the more ambitious markets you reach for, mm-hmm. um, that you you know maybe think that they won't like genre fiction, or they won't like your particular length of fiction that you're writing. Learning how to be okay with rejections and understanding that editors are talking about their needs and not the quality of your work in markets that are kind of closer to home helps you build those skills of being okay with hearing the things that editors have to tell you as you start reaching out farther. In that piece that I wrote for The Atlantic, there was all this conversation we had to have about making a genre fiction story accessible to the readers at The Atlantic who aren't even expecting fiction Mm -hmm. when they go to the Atlantic. And the conversations I had with genre fiction editors about, hey, this, you know, leans a little too heavily on, like, the technology element of the science fiction. Can you tweak it? So it's a little more about the aliens, right? That kind of conversation Mm -hmm. gave me the skills that I needed to be able to have that conversation with my editor at the Atlantic without freaking out that I was terrible and everything was the worst. Yeah. It's really key to be able to, like identify where like every time you do something you're building a skill it might not be the skill you think you're building but every time you set pen to paper or put your hands on the keyboard or however it is you write like every time that you go out and participate in this process you're building a skill i feel like the marie kondo discourse fits into this Mm -hmm. because like for me rejections spark joy they don't always make me happy in the moment, but they're useful and they reflect good things that I'm doing and hard work that I'm doing. And they're serving me in a way that, you know, Marie Kondo would describe like, yes, a toothbrush sparks joy, Mm -hmm. even though you don't look at it and feel excited. Yeah. Um, Although slight digression, I just got a water pick and that thing is the best. And every time I use it, I get so excited. And I just was out of town for a few days and I actively missed it. So, like, water pick sparks joy. Um, Welcome to adulthood. Oh, man, it's the best. That thing rules. My gums feel so good. Anyway, this is a big digression from short fiction. <laughs> just important. It's important. Yeah. So, I wonder since you have experience at both ends of the length spectrum. If you can just say a little bit, as we're getting towards the end of the show, just say a little bit about how short fiction and longer fiction are in conversation with each other, even if they're... I I feel like they're skills that mesh with each other, but don't entirely overlap. Absolutely. Something that I actually loved about going back and reading this story is, you know, seeing some of the places where I think I've grown as a writer, right? Like, I wouldn't use the word round three times in one sentence Mm -hmm. today. My copy editor somewhere is going, yes, you would. (laughs) (laughs) But also in the way that I've learned how how to kind of hone my voice more for the length that I'm using, the voice that I used in this short story is one that now I think I would reserve for a novella. 
there's a lot more digression. There's a lot more explanation. There's a lot more kind of unnecessary world building. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to say that world building in short fiction is unnecessary. It's crucial. But I, in Meet Cute, I did a lot of showing the reader, like, all of the, the like, God, the only way I can think to explain this is, I don't know if you remember Wishbone? Oh, yeah. The television show? Yeah. And at the end of the show, they would always do this, like, here's how the CGI worked for us to make it look like Wishbone was Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of that in Meet Cute, right? A lot of, like, hey, reader, here's how this works. That I think I wouldn't do now in a short piece of fiction because I would be doing so much different work to try and communicate themes and relationships. Where in longer fiction, there's so much more room for things to breathe that if you don't talk a little bit about how things work, the reader has time to start asking questions Mm -hmm. that I personally often don't know how to answer. Yeah. And I think that conversation happens in that space. I think the more room you leave for the words and characters to breathe, the more the world of the story rushes in to fill it. Yeah. And to fill that space. And, I mean, I I love all lengths of fiction. I love working in all lengths of fiction. And it always fucks me up so bad when I transition from one length of fiction to another. Mm -hmm. I just went from, I had to write a novel in a really short time frame. I had eight weeks and I wrote this novel. And then at the end of that, I had like, two days to breathe and then I had to dive into a novella that I had a deadline on Jesus and so I had like four weeks to write the novella and we wound up asking the publisher for a little more time so I didn't die but going back and rereading the first few chapters of that novella Mm -hmm. I'm doing all this letting the world breathe and all this like you know kind of expansive explanation of how stuff functions and I'm like oh right that doesn't have a home here the same way it did in the novel that I was just writing. Right. Yeah, and I I think that that is something that if you want to write short fiction, you can't just read novels, and if you want to write novels, you can't just read short fiction. Yeah. Like, you have to understand how the different forms work. Yeah, it's it's really crucial. And I think that it's, if you want to just write short fiction, it's also really important to be reading novels mm-hmm. so that you can see what you're not challenging your short fiction on. Right. Right. I have this tendency to make my short fiction very television-y. A lot of people who read River of Teeth, for instance, said that it it read a lot like television, mm-hmm. which is great. That's what I was going for. I wanted this to feel like you were watching like a like a Western, a pulp Western TV show. Yeah. Networks, get at Sarah. We we need we desperately need River of Teeth as television. <laughs> I will. I'm in Los Angeles. I'll just stick my head out the window and let them know. Yeah. But I mean, in writing that, that's how I tend to write a lot of my novella length and like novelette length fiction is as if I'm writing for television. Mm-hmm. And then every now and then I'll go and read a novel and realize that there are ways I can write in that voice while still doing things like describing how people look and, you know, including like a theme. Mm-hmm. beyond the one that I already knew I wanted. And by reading longer works that engage with the stuff I'm trying to do in my shorter work, I can see where I'm kind of resting on my laurels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, yeah, to to what you said, you know, definitely, definitely don't limit yourself to only what you're writing when you're reading. And don't even limit yourself to the genre that you're writing, like oh god no 
Because that's, like, if you only read space operas, you're you're not gonna be getting the ideas that are then going to help you write the amazing space opera that you want to write. Honestly, sometimes the conversations that we have in the genre fiction community make me feel like talking to this ex-boyfriend who I had who was really into IPA. Oh my god. And so, like, he would be like, oh, I want you to taste this beer. And I'd be like, I don't like IPA. And then he'd be like, no, taste it, because with these hops, you can really taste this, like, berry flavor in the hops, because they're this different kind of hops. No, and I'd be like, they well, okay. all just taste bitter. They all just taste bitter and terrible. But I would taste it, and because he spent so much time drinking IPA, he thought he was telling me the truth. He thought that, you know, this was a really exciting, different flavor of beer. And I was like, well... Maybe if you ever drank a porter or a stout or wine or whiskey or, you know, a milkshake or something, you would be able to recognize that this extremely narrow place mm-hmm. where you're, like, doing super tight slices of definition for your thing doesn't translate elsewhere. Yeah. You, you know, it's so like the thing that makes your space opera special and exciting can totally be that you have based your classes of royalty on like elizabethan politics instead of victorian politics and that that's the thing that defines you as different from this one other space opera Mm -hmm. that people really like but that kind of discussion of your work and like challenging of your work and frankly marketing of your work only functions inside a very narrow group of readers and if you want your work to be translatable to other people you have to know what those other people are thinking about and talking about when I tell people that I wrote River of Teeth and they are not part of the genre fiction community, mm-hmm. they're like, what kind of book is that? And if I said it is an alternate history, weird Western um, that draws on pulp traditions, they'd be like, what? <laughs> so instead I say, oh, it's like cowboys, but hippos. And they go, oh, awesome. And they get excited yeah. because I'm talking to them about flavor differences that their tongues know how to detect yeah you're you're talking in their experience outside of this very like it's so easy to think of the genre fiction community as the only community and everybody knows what you're talking about but it's really not so i work in technology my day job is i do technology at an independent school and Living in the Bay Area, I talk to a lot of other people who do technology, not in independent schools. And I will just, I'll be having conversations with them and throw around these acronyms that I just think about constantly at my job. And even though they're in technology, they're like, what the fuck is an SIS? And then I have to back (laughs) up and be like, oh, so that's a student information system and... Yeah, I have that exact same thing even in the genre fiction community, right? People will be like, oh, this is, you know, it's like steampunk, but really it's a little bit more like coal punk, and (laughs) I find that sustainable punk is more exciting to me. And I'm like, my dudes, like, we are getting so caught up in what makes us different within such a narrow space that it becomes impossible to even communicate Mm -hmm. about... Our work, And also, a lot of times, those conversations are happening about what makes us different in genre fiction instead of the conversations about, like, representation in genre fiction. 
And it's just like, hey, read more broadly. Yeah. I mean, this this whole conversation that we're having about reading more broadly, we're having as two whites. Yep. And it it is a craft issue just as much as reading people who don't share your cultural background or skin color or religious background or gender identity or sexual identity mm-hmm. is all of these things are things that you you really you have to do to inform your craft like that's my biggest piece of writing advice is just read more broadly than you are now yeah so this is the point in the show where we would have some words of wisdom and i would give a a prompt for words of wisdom and then we'd hem and haw for a few minutes and that would be edited out and then one of us would drop like some huge knowledge but i think you just did that so oh shit i ruined the podcast i'm so sorry (laughs) oh no 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 no. you're fine yeah just read broadly consider and if you think you already read broadly read more broadly start reading nonfiction. start reading memoirs start oh read this memoir read um Mallory O'Mara's Lady from the Black Lagoon. Yes. There you go. Yes. Perfect crossover choice for genre fiction readers who are like, oh no, nonfiction, I don't know if I can do it. Um, Lady from the Black Lagoon is about Millicent Patrick, who is the woman who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes, the one from the movie. Yes. And whose entire legacy was erased by a shitty man who was insecure about the fact that she was getting a lot of attention. And you should go read it immediately right now well you can't write right now because it's not out yet but it'll be out uh in like it comes out one on week, march 5th so... i think yeah march 5th yeah. one week from the date that we're recording this yes so go read that if you already think you read broadly go read that and then report back to me about it yeah yeah i so i i studied creative writing in college and i couldn't just like a there were no genre fiction classes and b i couldn't just take fiction classes where I was reading things I was comfortable with for the whole four years. You know, that really had me, even within, like, the lens of academia that is often very limited in terms of, you know, we mostly read white men, but still... Of course. Like, even there we were reading, you know, I took a nonfiction class, I took two nonfiction classes, and, like, we read... Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, which is a graphic memoir, and we read, you know, Michael Ondaatje, and we read all these voices that if I had just stayed at home and read, like, a lot of popcorn books, I wouldn't be exposed to those voices, and I'd be a poorer writer for it. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think that even, like, the shitty required reading that you have to do in a lot of high school mm-hmm. and college literature courses can make you into a more critical reader. Yeah. There's some ways in which it try, those classes try to stamp out critical thinking because they're like, read an essay on why this book is good. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> oh, well, it's not. But if you can even approach failure books where you start trying to read them and you're like, oh, I'm going to just die if I keep on reading this garbage, they can make you a more critical reader, which makes you a more critical writer and makes it so that you can say, oh, what do I find boring about this book? I don't want to reproduce that in my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So there's your wisdom. Read Mallory O'Mara. Yes. <laughs> so before we get going, listeners, you can find Sarah Gailey online on Twitter at Gailey Frey. That is really the best place to 
experience threads about beetles and other wild animals that you wouldn't have known you needed in your life. It's the best place to find out what they're doing at any given time. And it's just a delightful follow. Even if you think you can't follow one more person on Twitter or you'll die, follow Sarah Gailey and then at least you'll die happy. (laughs) And also, Sarah, you have a debut novel coming out. Is that right? I sure do. Um, June 4th, Magic for Liars, which is the story of a private investigator who is hired to solve the murder of a faculty member at a high school for magical teens. It is the high school where her estranged sister just so happens to work. The private investigator does not have magic powers. Her sister does, and she feels fine about it, and there's no problems ever, and everyone is happy, and everything is fine. It's true. I've, I've read the book, and everyone is happy, and everything is fine. And it's fantastic. The book is available for pre-order anywhere that you can order books. I highly recommend you order it through IndieBound.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-B-O-U-N-D, where you will be ordering the book from and supporting independent booksellers instead of the the evil empire. Yes, yes. listeners, if you if you have a local bookstore, go and order it straight from your local bookstore. And if you like online shopping instead, go to IndieBound, get it there, support your local bookseller, support the authors that you love with your money before their book is out. You can also go and request it from your library. Um, Libraries can pre-order books and they're very excited to do it. And we like libraries. Go libraries, libraries with us. Libraries are also an amazing way to support authors. Never feel bad about getting your favorite author's book out of the library. Because libraries are America's greatest public institution, and there should be more of them. Go libraries, go houseboats. Go libraries, go houseboats. Sarah Gailey, thank you again so much. Uh, You will be excited to know, and listeners, I hope you will also be excited to know that Next month's episode, we're having a Sarah Fiction double feature with the inimitable Sarah Hollowell. Other Sarah is the other half of my heart, and I support her unconditionally, and her being on this show is the best thing that's ever happened to anyone. There you have it. So, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. See you again next time. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. Patrons of the show get access to show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBisniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.